0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well,
1: a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. As you can tell, we are delighted to be here with you to uh, take on your questions regarding the Word of God. If you've got biblical questions on your heart or on your mind, uh, anywhere from Genesis to Revelation on the table, maybe you'd like to talk about biblical prophecy. How close are we to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Maybe it's the events of the day that uh, have uh, raised some questions in your mind. What does it mean to have a solidly biblical perspective on even uh, the most contemporaneous controversies and events that can swirl about us both inside and outside of the church? Uh, Get on, And we would love to tackle your questions on those issues. Uh, Maybe you have been asked a tough question about your faith in Christ and maybe felt a day late and a dollar short as far as being able to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That is one of our passionate desires here in this ministry. In fact, it's uh, kind of our mission statement to be able to come alongside you and equip you to be able to answer the questions. Uh, that uh, are not only on the minds, but uh, in a way that gets through to the hearts of people and hopefully introduces them to the light and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Give us a uh, shout-out with those kind of questions. We'll be happy to tackle them as a broadcast unfolds. If you are going through a tough or challenging time in your walk with God, maybe you could use some guidance and direction and a personal issue in your life, hey, bring it on. We would love to hear what's going on in your life. Even more importantly, we'd love to share with you the time-tested truths we found in the Bible and uh, the amazing difference they can make within your life. Uh, Get online if you'd like to do that, or if you'd just like to explore the Word of God, digging deep maybe into a passage that has uh, baffled you, or maybe even one that has blessed you. We are all over it. Wherever we go, entirely up to you. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope.
2: Uh, if people want to get those questions to us, Sean, how can they do that? Well, you can first of all email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Uh, little note and clarification. I I'm very saddened that I have to keep repeating this note, but I guess such is needful for you, so that this mistake isn't made by those who are unaware. Um, The email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, is to receive your Bible questions. That's what it's intended for that's what it was made for and that's what it will be used for if you sign us up for newsletters or you know associate us with people uh, share information that isn't relevant to that topic then we're unfortunately going to have to block you yeah we just
1: really want to focus in on uh, making this the
2: conduit for our questions yeah and we don't want to have to get all i guess uh full of the muddle of topics that either A, don't have anything to do with that, or B, make us make it harder for us to find information pertaining to that. So if you just send us spam links or use this email address other than its intended purpose, then I, again, say this with every ounce and sincerity, you're becoming an obstacle to the reason why we are hosting this program, and I know you don't all want to do that intentionally. Make sure that when you email us your questions, it's a Bible question, not a link, not a newsletter, not uh, sending us to someone's page so that we get notifications from them from that time onward. It is to ask your questions. Note that as long as those questions are sincere and about the Bible and the substance of the answer, as well as the question, we'll be happy to deal with them. But if you aren't able to send us your questions by email, you can join us live on our email, or not our email, our social media address, excuse me one moment here, Um, This is, of course, going to be on social media through the venue of Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is also a reason for hope. If you want to use either of those venues, note that you will be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone when that fits into your purview, but note as well... If you want to join us on a site that uh, won't likely censor us for the things that we say and that we will say, uh, you can still join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. You click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our page where we are streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If you want to bookmark the page, it's ccf ccftucson.online.church, and there we are also broadcasting our bi-weekly Bible studies. We'll be continuing the book of Revelation tonight, the Millennial Kingdom, What's Wrong with a Perfect World? Yeah. So we'll be looking forward to that. But noting the questions we'll be receiving today about the Bible, we will open the venue for you. Note that on YouTube during the live stream, you can leave us questions as the stream is unfolding on the right-hand side of the screen or in the comments section during the, uh, I guess, later broadcast if you're watching them. Uh, as they have passed. Also note if you want to get your questions to us on Facebook, feel free to message the account directly Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and our website of course will have a section where you can send us your questions. That'll include the email address which you can use again for its intended purpose at any given time. We got some questions that are being sent in and we want to make sure that we give them full time and respect, but before we say anything, we want to make sure God speaks more than we do. So why don't we take a moment to pray, dedicate this time to Him, and again, uh, hope that He gives us as much ears to hear His voice as well as a mouth to communicate it. Absolutely. Lord, thank you so much that we have this wonderful opportunity to be able to explore
1: your Word together. And wherever we go, whether it's uh, focusing in on the soon return of your Son, whether it's dealing with the uh, nitty-gritty issues of life that people are going through, whether it's helping people to have a solid foundation, their faith in these skeptical and distressing times, whether well, it's just a word of encouragement or two uh, for those that are, are hanging in there just to keep on keeping on and, and to keep looking up because their salvation draws near. We pray that this program will be used for those purposes and so much more. Thank you for the privilege of being in your presence here. Fill us with your spirit, both Sean and myself. And uh, as Sean mentioned, I pray that you would give those who are tuning in ears to hear very special and personal things that you would share with them from from your amazing word. We love you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, part of a question
2: has been posted. Might, well, uh,
1: before we launch in, kind of a prophecy update I wanted to uh, get to, because uh, we've been talking about this uh, quite a bit. Uh, as you know, uh, our perspective here on this program is is to focus in on what the Bible has to say about uh, the signs of the times, uh, particularly as they pertain to the nation of Israel. Uh, We are given a perspective in Scripture, and I think it was Don Stewart, our good friend, who uh, once put it uh, so wonderfully, that when it comes to the countdown for Jesus' return, Israel is God's hour hand. Jerusalem is the minute hand, and uh, the Temple Mount itself is the second hand. Well, we definitely have an update today that pertains to Israel and uh, really pertains, I think, to uh, the exhortations that we've shared with you as a reason for our family to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. As you know, we've talked quite a bit uh, about the revival of what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called Iranian nuclear deal. And it seemed that uh, no matter how bad this deal was or how uh, the Iranians kept pushing for more and more concessions, uh, it seemed like the United States and uh, Europe, the uh, European nations that were entering into this deal, uh, along with the Russians, uh to supposedly put the brakes on Iran's nuclear ambitions well it would do nothing of the kind uh the idea of verification of uh the uh the steps that Iran has made towards becoming a uh, nation with nuclear weapons uh, are are really very scant and very uh easily avoidable in this agreement it would also free up over 1 billion that is with a b one billion dollars every month for uh, the mad Mullahs in tehran to use to export their particular brand of Shiite uh, extremism and terroristic violence in the Middle East and beyond. So we've asked you uh, on a regular basis to be praying that the Lord would intervene and not uh, allow this particular agreement to come to pass, that, that cooler heads would prevail. Well, fascinating article uh, running on the honestreporting.com website today said this, a new nuclear agreement between Iran and the world powers is off the table And will not be signed, quote, in the foreseeable future, Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration reportedly told Israeli officials in recent conversations. The news broke after Mohammed Morandi, an advisor to Iran's negotiating team, over the weekend said, quote, Iran won't accept ambiguities or loopholes in the text. Winter is approaching and the EU is facing a crippling energy crisis. Iran will be patient. Well, the possible restoration of this uh, joint comprehensive plan of action first proposed in 2015 has been at the center of Israel's concerns over the past year, with a concerned Jerusalem closely monitoring indirect talks in Vienna between Tehran, Washington, and the European nations. Israel carried on an intensive campaign, quote-unquote, to prevent the revival of this dangerous accord, uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid revealed at uh, this week's cabinet meeting. The nuclear deal that was being negotiated and since President Biden entered the White House in 2021 focused on removing sanctions on the Iranian regime in exchange for partially restricting its capabilities to build a nuclear weapon. In recent sides, in recent weeks, the sides exchanged several draft agreements, including a final proposal brought forth by the European foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell. Uh, According to experts cited by the Jewish News Syndicate, the pact under review would be considerably shorter and weaker than the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Well, what has put the brakes on this particular agreement? Well, there's another interesting story uh, that ran in the Jerusalem Post with this headline. Iran calls cyber attack claims, quote, baseless after Albania severs ties. Uh, The U.S. condemned an Iranian cyber attack against Albania, a full member of NATO, by the way, warning that it would take action to hold Iran accountable. Well, uh, the prime minister of Albania, Eddie Rama, said on Wednesday that uh, Albania is ending its diplomatic relations with Iran, has ordered Iranian diplomats and embassy staff to leave within 24 hours, into, after an investigation into a cyber attack in July, found that Iran is responsible. Uh, Rama said the extreme response is fully proportionate to the gravity and risk of the cyber attack that threatened to paralyze public services, erase digital systems and hack into state records, steal government inter- intranet electronic communication, and stir chaos and insecurity in the country. Well, once again, uh, the prime minister of uh, Albania said that the purpose of the attack was to destroy the Albanian government's Internet uh, infrastructure. Uh, In fact, last month, the cybersecurity firm Mandiant estimated that the July attack conducted by Iran through Russia uh, was noted uh, by a number of outlets. Uh, The U.S. strongly condemned the cyber attack. It was called a notably brazen operation by Iran Nexus threat actors. So, uh, very interesting. The company Mandiant theorized that the attack indicates that Iran, quote, may feel less restraint in conducting cyber network attack operations going forward and may have an increased tolerance of risk when conducting cyber attacks. Though investigations have been conducted to make sure that no irreversible damage was done and identify the hackers, uh, all of the systems seem to be back up and running. The attack took place on July 15th. It has been determined that it was not... An individual operation or a criminal operation, but a state sponsored attack. So uh, Rama added that uh, NATO was updated on all of this uh, information. Uh, as you know, uh, the NATO pact indicates that an attack on one NATO member is construed as an attack on all. NATO members, and the response has to be commensurate along with that. The United States uh, has condemned the attack. A United States National Security Council spokesman, Adrienne Watson, said the United States will take further action to hold Iran accountable for actions that threaten the security of a U.S. ally and set a troubling precedent for cyberspace. Uh, Iran's conduct disregards norms of responsible peacetime state uh, state behavior in cyberspace, said Watson. Malicious cyber activity by a state that intentionally damages critical infrastructure or otherwise impairs its use and operation uh, can have cascading domestic, regional, and even global effects, pose an elevated risk of harm to the population, and may, may lead to escalation and conflict." Well, why did the uh, Biden administration suddenly back off of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? Uh, I believe two things may be coming into play here. First of all, the brazen attack by the Iranians on the Albanian uh, Internet infrastructure uh... because they are a nato ally the united states credibility as the lead nation of nato was literally on the line if we didn't have some strong response to the iranians as a result of uh... what could actually be called these days uh, an act of war so uh... that that's one aspect of it the other aspect of it uh, was a, an event that didn't really get a whole lot of play in the mainstream media but was very significant uh... the decision of the saudi arabian government uh, not to uh, increase production of petroleum, despite being directly requested to do so by our president. As they
2: asked so nicely. You
1: know, as you know, uh, the uh, inflationary problems that we are having here are hitting people very, very hard. But one of the more, more dramatic aspects of it is the fact that the price of oil has uh, and, uh, and gas has uh, doubled in uh, the last two years here in this nation. And so uh, our government went hat in hand to the Saudis and said please could you increase production so that we can lower the price of oil. We've already tapped into our strategic reserves. We don't really have anywhere else to go. Uh, The Saudis essentially said in light of all this no we're not going to do that. And I think one of the reasons they decided not to do that was because of the United States cozying up to Iran in this joint comprehensive plan of action. You See if Iran goes nuclear That means that the Saudis have to go nuclear. Why? Because Iran are Shiite Muslims, and the Saudis are Sunni Muslims. How do Shiites generally, Sean, feel about
2: Sunnis? Well, on both ends, they see each other as hypocrites, or people who are observing Islam with deficiency. As far as the history behind it, a summary of a summary, the fifth successor of Muhammad, the caliph, if you will, was set between two individuals. One was Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali, who the Shiites venerate as essentially a successor to his prophetic status and power, while the Sunnis, those who follow the Sunnah, the life, the life lived out, literally, of Muhammad, uh, consider that blasphemous, and they have the Quran's backing on that. But when they note these points about the right of succession, a war was fought in one of the bloodiest wars in Middle Eastern history between Muslims and other Muslims on this political succession. The The Battle of the Trench, right? No, the Battle of the Trench was outside of Mecca. This was the Battle of the Camel, uh, led against Aisha and her representative, Muisa and Ali and his uh, followers, who was, by the way, nicknamed the Commander of the Faithful. So guess who won that battle? But when we're uh, talking about the point, the majority of Shiites, those who believe Ali is the rightful successor to Muhammad, and that anyone who bears this title of Muhammad's successor has this prophetic power, very supernatural bent. They're generally found in Iran. I know they're throughout the world in minority status, but as far as the two major sects of Islam, you're going to find it among those. There are others that have a more mystical bent, but that's the point that's being made. Sunni Muslims see Shias as not only following a false leader, someone who wasn't appointed by Muhammad, according to Aisha, who they blame for everything wrong with the world, but also put a point of emphasis on that source, that the understanding of the life that Muhammad lived out is continuing to be modeled by Ali and his successors. Also note as well, when we see the Sunni Muslims, they constitute the overwhelming majority, but the substance of Islamic teachings as far as the call to violence against those who do not believe in Allah, Surah 929 is in both of their Qurans. It's literally a political semantic issue, kind of like the, not necessarily doctrinal, but the uh, social issues between Catholics and Protestants? Does the Pope actually inherit the status of the Vicar of Christ as opposed to Protestants saying the Holy Spirit's still at work with us today and anyone speaking through him should be trusted on the merit of whether or not they're speaking the truth in alignment with God's Word? That's essentially the foundation of the issue, but it's enough that people suffer intense persecution on both sides for, because remember, the call to Islamic violence and jihad isn't just against the unbelievers, but the hypocrites, which they both Regard each other as they're both under a death penalty in Islam. Yes. So uh, the fact of the matter is,
1: this—I mean, it all might sound like inside baseball on a spiritual level to us, but uh, it is literally the thing that has lit the fuse of conflict in the Middle East. The more you understand uh, how the people who were involved with all of this think and what their reasoning is. Uh, the better you're going to be able to make sense of what's going on. One of the huge mistakes, I believe, that our government and our State Department has made in dealing with the Middle East down through time is assuming that the Muslims in the Middle East see their religion the way people in Washington, D.C. see their religion when they go to, say, uh, an Episcopal service every once in a while. Yeah, it's a nice little cultural thing, but it certainly doesn't uh, really make any difference in their lives. Uh, they need to understand uh, that you can criticize both the Sunnis and the Shiites for a lot of things, but sincerity isn't one of the things that you can criticize them for. They really, really, really believe in what they're selling. They really believe, for instance, that if they die in a jihad, uh, that they're going to go to Muslim heaven Uh Our State Department's like, oh, well, who even really knows if there's a heaven or not? We just want to get along. We want to have our kids go to good schools. We want to have a good life for ourselves. Doesn't everybody think that way? No, no, and no. And the more we think that the Muslims in the Middle East think the way we do, the more you see these tremendous goofs and gaps that we make in that particular region. The only ones I can say who consistently understand the Muslim mindset are Israel, and um, the IDF, I think they understand
2: it very, very well. They're seeing it firsthand every day, so keep your prayers not only in mind for the safety and the peace of Jerusalem, but also for the salvation of the Islamic people, because Shia or Sunni, they're following a false prophet, and that's what we ultimately need to confront. Not them militarily, that is the method of their warfare, our warfare, as Second Corinthians chapter 10, I believe, says, is not carnal, but spiritual, for tearing down arguments and everything that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. So with that being said, we want to equip you for just that. I uh, got a question from D Master on <laughs> YouTube, who uh, essentially wants to know, and this was something that was brought up by our dear friend Robert Furrow in regards to Luke 22, 1 through 6, uh, regarding the issue of Judas' Iscariot being predestined to betray Jesus as opposed to him having a choice in the matter with the uh, eternal and very unfortunate consequences. So I guess the office of betrayer and the status of Judas as betrayer, were those both decided, were those both caused, and ultimately, where do we draw the line between the two scripturally, given the information that we have?
1: Yeah, did was uh, Judas caused to betray Jesus to fulfill prophecy, or did Judas choose to betray Jesus because of his own desires and his own uh, character flaws? I would say the answer is both. Uh, And scripture doesn't emphasize one over the other. Uh, You know, it's interesting how with Judas Iscariot, this it's a great example of this, even though at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus identified the one who uh, dipped his hand uh, with him in the dish. That is, the guest of honor at the dinner was going to be the one who would betray him. Uh, He warned that it would be better for this man if he had never been born. I mean, talk about a cosmic implication-loaded statement. Uh, And yet, uh, Judas went out and did that. Even when Judas came to betray Jesus in the garden, Jesus allowed Judas Iscariot to kiss him. And he said, friend, why have you come? I mean, even at that late date, Jesus is still extending friendship to this man who had every intention of uh, seeing Jesus sold out for 30 pieces of silver, as uh, the uh, the uh, facts relate in the Scripture and as the proverbial uh, example of uh, being a horrible sellout and a traitor goes. Did Judas have to do it? Uh, well, the prophecy had to be fulfilled. Uh, did Judas do it? Yeah, he sure did. Uh, could Judas have repented of what he did. Well, he repented, we are told, to a certain level, in that he brought his 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and he confessed the fact that he betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to you? To us? You see to it. And Judas threw the money in the temple treasury and stormed out. Now, at that moment, Judas Iscariot faced an existential choice, if you want to use that word. He could either take his life into his own hands, and pay his own price for his sins, if you will, by taking his own life, or he could have, like Simon Peter, remember, who also denied knowing the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times, wait around and see if those other statements that Jesus made about rising from the dead actually came to pass and could have experienced reconciliation. Could that have happened? Could have. Did it happen? No, it did not so, uh, you know, could Judas Iscariot have found forgiveness? Possibly. He certainly didn't. You know, we're sort of talking about hypotheticals. But uh, understand something. The Bible indicates that even though God knows prophetically what is going to come to pass, this does not in any way, and I think this is the nub of the question. I'll get your take on it, Sean. But the nub of the question is, does the idea of predictive prophecy abrogate the idea of free will. No, uh, and okay. and let me give you an example where I think we see that uh, it does not, uh, where both things are true at the same time. It's found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38, Uh, We're told in uh, Jeremiah 38, uh, things were kind of coming down to the wire as far as the kingdom of Judah was concerned, as far as the king of Judah, a man by the name of Zedekiah was concerned. The Babylonians had come and pretty much surrounded the city and were intending to take it. Uh, Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something, hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surely surrender to to Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. The city shall not be burned with fire, and your house will live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then the city shall be given in the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you, so it shall be well with you and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left to the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes, and those women will say, your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you, your feet have sunk in the mire, and they've turned away again, a mocking song that they would sing." So they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but you shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause the city to be burned with fire. Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know these words, and you shall not die. So, you know, again, uh, here we see that Zedekiah had a genuine choice. He was told by God that if he surrendered to the oncoming army of the Babylonians. Open the gates, let him take over. He would not die, he would not be handed over to his enemies, had already defected to the Babylonians, and the city would not be burned. As well as his eyes and his kids. Yeah. So Zedekiah makes a choice. He decides not to open the gates of the city of Babylon because he was so terrified of the and consumed by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. so Political
2: cronies wouldn't be uh, too keen on a king defecting or going against the national pride they had at the time. So what happened? Well, Nebuchadnezzar caught up with him, had him brought before him, he put out his eyes, killed his kids right in front of him before that, being the last, last thing, he, thing he, he ever saw, yeah. and then took him off to Babylon where he spent the rest of his life as a blind beggar, and uh, note that point as well. Both of those outcomes were explained to him by the prophet, but...
1: And the city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground. In fact, if you go on a tour of Israel with us, one of the fascinating things we saw uh, over by the uh, Pool of Siloam, they show you the burn layer. Uh, in the, uh, the city. Uh, it's this like black charcoal racing stripe that's about three feet uh, across and just runs the length of this uh, particular strata of rock. And they say, this is the burn layer of the city of Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Babylonians in 585 BC. So, you know, we see right before us this destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Why, then, did God say to Zedekiah, if you surrender, it won't be burned? Was that just kidding? God had already made up his mind that Jerusalem was going to be burned? He was just sort of playing mind games with Zedekiah? Or was it an actual alternative? Could history itself, in a radical way for the Jews, have been unalterably changed if Zedekiah had said, okay, I'm going to believe God? Yes, yes. And you know what's true of the history of Zedekiah is true of all of our histories. God says in the book of Deuteronomy, See, I've set before you life and death, the blessing and curse. Choose life that you may live, that you may love the Lord your God. Before each and every person, God presents a choice to say yes or no, to a relationship with him, and the consequences are forthcoming. Now notice something, you know, there's this uh, uh, concept that gets floated around called open theism, where God is like surprised at outcomes, that God limits his uh, omniscience, if you will, uh, in order for us to have free will. You know, I can see why some might come to that conclusion philosophically, but it doesn't stand up scripturally. God knows the end from the beginning. But, uh, you know, again, you mentioned Robert Furrow at the beginning of this. He said this once, and I thought it was so right on. He said, my God is so sovereign, he's so in charge of all things, that his sovereignty even allows for free will and free choice. Genuine free will and free choice. And our free choice matters. It really does. It determines our eternal destiny. But to as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But he also gives us a choice whether we're going to receive or reject a love relationship with him because love that's not freely given isn't real love.
2: And also note as well, given the details we actually have about Judas' betrayal, we know he's had A, many choices along the way, B, was aware of the consequences of the decisions he was making that day, as well as the days right. before it, and was given chance after chance to go back from the ultimate consequences of it. So much like with Zedekiah, what do we have a scenario of? We have God explaining to everyone involved, right. everyone who had access to the Jewish scriptures and beyond, right. Judas Iscariot being one of them, that the one who betrays the Messiah is putting himself in a place where he would be at odds with God in a very serious way, you know, betraying him to death and all. Uh, Fulfillment of Isaiah 41 in verse 9 wasn't the person you wanted to grow up to be. So if that was then the case, then Judas knew what he was doing. Also note that Jesus continually began to minister to Judas and put him in a position of honor, where we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, that before Satan had put it into the mind of Judas, or uh, when Satan had put it in the mind of judas before satan entered judas jesus gave him the place of honor at the table jesus had ministered to him and given him not only every single accolade but was just as much a one of the apostles being exposed to all of jesus miracles his teachings and his claims for the last three years every day
1: he didn't have the hammer fall on him because he was well aware that uh, judas was dipping into the disciples funds for his own uh gain
2: and at the point of that passover he had already agreed To sell Jesus out for the money. He had that money with him, I don't know physically, but you're noting the point, that was in his possession, that was a part of his personal uh, net gain that year, and Jesus still welcomed him into the house. But the consequences were explained, the warnings were given, the alternatives were provided, and because there is a universe that God made with consequences, Right. The fact that those consequences exist is suddenly God's fault when he gives us every reason not to do them. We discussed this on Monday, but it's about the same kind of second-grade logic as saying, well, if God didn't want me to burn my hand, then he shouldn't have made chemical combustion so violent. If if God really loved me, then he would let me play around with fire, because that's what I wanted to do with my life. How dare God make a world where there are consequences for my choices? He predestined me to do it. It's really his fault.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, we were talking before Eric air- time about uh, Britney Spears coming out as an atheist, uh, and her rationale behind that was, if there was really a God, why would he let me uh, live in such a messed up family? Now, (laughs) uh, there's no doubt about the fact that if you followed along at the very public trials and tribulations of Britney Spears, she's had a pretty tough roto, and I get that. But, uh, you know, it just reminds me of the old saw. Friedrich Nietzsche once said that God is dead, but the Bible says something else. Man is dead without God. In other words, we're spiritually separated from him, and because we're spiritually separated from him, guess what? We end up doing terrible things to each other, to blame God for individuals using their moral free agency to do terrible things. Uh, You know, I kind of wonder if, people would really want it both ways. Well, why would God allow my family to be like this? Well, consider the alternative. How would you feel if God came to your family and overrode their free will at every point so that they were just a perfect loving family the whole time? You would have no free will, no free choice. You would not have the dignity of being made in the image and likeness of God, but you'd probably have a few less problems along the way while you lived your life like a robot. Um, The fact of the matter is, God gave us free will and free choice because without it, a real love relationship with him is impossible. Uh, He fully considered the cost of that choice because we are told that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He knew that he would enter into this messed up world that we have made through our own uh, wrong choices and our own uh, moral defects. He would live a perfect sinless life in the person of Jesus, take that life, and die on a cruel Roman cross for your sins and my sins, and then rise from the dead so that we could be forgiven for our sins. Instead of uh, saying, and you guys did talk about this quite a bit on Monday, uh, why hasn't God made the best of all possible worlds? Well, who's to say that this isn't the best of all possible worlds that we live in right now, a world where we do have the opportunity while we are here to say yes to a genuine relationship with the true and living God?
2: Well, given alternatives will Sherlock Holmes this a bit—we have four alternatives. If we see the world that we live in today, where the ultimate virtue is allowed to be expressed—the possibility for the greatest good and the possibility for the existence of evil—we have to ask, what else could God have done? And ReasonableFaith.com has laid this out fairly eloquently. You can check it out on your own time. He could have created no world. No possibility for evil, no possibility for anything going wrong, because the only thing that would be existing would be God, the nature and foundation for goodness. So if that is then the case, we need to ask the question, if he did create a world, if he did make something, could he make it where only good decisions would be allowed? Well, he could have, but note that would not be creation. That would be expansion. There would just be a physical aspect to God's nature being represented, and it wouldn't be any more meaningful than if I were to simply sit in a different chair. I'd just be represented. It wouldn't be anything more than what you already had. The third possible world would be where justice was emphasized. The moment that someone would, in fact, reject God's standards, they would be immediately accountable for it, and the long-branching consequences of that nature on display would, in fact, be done away with immediately. But note, that means all of creation is wiped out the moment that it separates itself from God. Adam and Eve obviously being the first, and all of us coming from Adam and Eve, according to the Christian worldview, would then mean nothing exists. We'd be back to the first world. The only thing that would exist would be God. The th- uh, fourth option, of course, is an interesting one in creating a world and creating a world where only things can function in goodness or a world where only justice is emphasized. The fourth possible world would be one where we live in now, the alternative to not Uh, anything apart from God existing is allowing something other than God to exist. I think that makes sense. And if something other than absolute goodness exists that allows, if they're given the will, opportunity and capacity to make decisions, and that their decisions do have consequences, otherwise they never really had a decision in the first place, would be to allow them to receive him, to accept him, to acknowledge him, to have a relationship with him, but also not to to say no to that foundation right. of goodness and go our own way. And we see the consequences of it every single day, not just in the origins of mankind, but the expressions thereof apart from God as well. Every single day we see more and more God's, uh, oh, as the the meme shows of Perry the Platypus, uh, staring openly into the heavens every day we stray further from God. It's that kind of image. <laughs> so when we're talking... I mean, he's of, Perry the Platypus. Yeah. yeah, so he knows things. But yeah. when we're talking about this issue, we need to keep that in mind. If we ask, well, why didn't God do it this way? Well, he didn't, and he's the best possible being, so if you want to uh, put in a job application against an omniscient being for the way that he does things, I would either call you arrogant or silly, but if on the other hand you're going to note where are we now today, we are given the opportunity to receive back that fellowship, not by a God who allowed us created us with the inevitable consequence of us separating ourselves from him and the consequences thereof, but a God who subjected himself to our evil at its peak in order to reconcile us back to him. Romans 5, 6 through 8 doesn't say that, well, God saved us when we finally got our acts together and we deserved it. That We formed this community of people who didn't have any division or didn't have any problems. we finally, decided to be chill. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're good people now. Uh, no, it says when we were enemies of God, that's when he gave his life life for us, that he ransomed himself for us. So if that's our understanding of God's nature, then attributing motive to him and saying that, oh, well, he created Judas just to go to hell, not according to the information that we're given. Oh, he just created us all to go to hell, not according to the historical witness he's given to us of himself personally. Oh, well, God just created hell because he's just that kind of person. Well not given the information that we have about hell itself, let alone about God. Go off the information we know, and hopefully that is clear, but make sure that this is also understood in light of the full revelation, not in light of speculation, given a lack of that insight.
1: Hey, how about uh, this question, getting into revelation or speculation? I love this. Uh, Nina on our calvarychristianfellowship.com website, check it out if you haven't, uh, asked the question, why is the Church divided, and who is to say that you're right Sean and Scott, how do I know you aren't false prophets? Well, well I, ha- me-
2: I asked five times, and I wasn't given an answer, so we're going to have to wait for that answer. Well,
1: let me answer that question, because I think it's an important one. How do you know that you can trust what you hear on this particular broadcast? Well, let me, uh, let me share with you a couple of things. First of all, uh, there is an example that we have in Scripture of a guy that was such a great prophet uh... jesus said among those born of women no one has arisen greater than this guy his name was john the baptist now listen to what john the baptist said about himself and uh, the the mark of a true prophet of god john answered and said this is john chapter three and verse twenty seven a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven you yourselves bear me witness that said i am not the christ but i've been sent before him He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony is certified that God is true." For he whom God has sent, speaking of Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now notice something that characterizes a guy that got two thumbs up as a true prophet of God by no less an authority than Jesus Himself. Nina, you, know, you can look that up in Matthew chapter eleven and verse eleven. He continually pointed to Jesus. Even a guy who basically could say, hey, you know what? The book of Isaiah speaks about me. I'm prophesied in that book. He didn't stand on that. He goes, don't you know that I'm the forerunner of the Messiah? You need to give me my propers. You need to give me my respect. No, listen to what he said. He must increase and I must decrease. The first way that you can tell you're dealing with a true prophet is this. A true prophet will always point you nowhere else, and to no less a person than God through our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what a true prophet is all about. I remember seeing the Christian writer and counselor Jeffrey Van Vonderen at a conference and he put it this way, a true prophet points upward and says look at God. A false prophet says look at me. Now one of the things that we desperately try to do on this program on a regular basis is tell you, hey sometimes We get it wrong. Our theology isn't perfect. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. But the other thing that we will say to you that I think can maybe give you a little confidence about all of this, whether we're a valid source of spiritual truth or not, is uh, Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. There we are told that the believers in Berea were more noble-minded than those who were at Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness and search the scriptures daily to find out if these things were really so. Now, two characteristics of the Berean believers. What were they?
2: They not only heard what they said... They made sure that they were checking out, we'll get to that in a second, what was actually said, not what they thought they said or what they think that they, Paul was saying, but they searched these scriptures. If he gave citation, evidence, right. eyewitness testimony to the sort of things that he was claiming, they checked it out with the people that made those claims, that saw those things themselves in the first place, to see if those things were really so. They were willing to hear someone other than themselves talk, which I know is hard for us as human beings. But on top of that, they didn't say, well, he said it, that settles it. I want to know if what he's quoting, what he's representing actually makes sense, given the information that's available.
1: And one of the things that we constantly exhort you all to do, and we don't say it because it's a nice thing to say, but we say it um, serious as an undertaker, uh, is this. Don't believe something you hear on this program just because we said it. You look into the Scriptures. When you stand before the Lord someday, Nina, God is never going to look at you and say, well, what did Scott and Sean say about that issue? He's going to say, no, what did you do with the gift of my word that I've given to you? So if we are able to do anything on this broadcast, uh, our goal is to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God as he reveals these things in the Scripture. And as we say... Uh, We are open to correction. If someone uh, says, oh, wait a minute, haven't you thought about this particular verse? Or I heard you say this, and I'm not sure that's scripturally uh, accurate. Boy, we are under the same authority that you are, Nina. And one day we will give an account before the Lord for uh, how we handled his truth. So um, could we be false prophets? Um, You know, that's one of those tail-chasing questions that I think you'll never be able to answer because how can you really know the heart of anybody else? But what you need to judge, Nina, is the content that you get on this program. Is it scriptural? Does it, is it backed up by the clear, in-context teaching of God's Word on whatever subject that we may be addressing? And uh, sometimes we get it right, and we'll be the first uh, ones to say sometimes we get it wrong. That's why we never tell you to put your faith and your trust in a reason for hope. That's why we never tell you to put your faith and your trust in Calvary Christian Fellowship. That's why we never tell you to put your faith and your trust in Calvary Chapel. We tell you only to put your faith and trust in Jesus, because in Romans chapter 10 we are told, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So there you go. Uh, Uh, Be a baran. Yeah, (laughs) we'll
2: take a pause on that, but I want to revisit some of the uh, side comments that were made along the way. I think it'll be a good ammunition for those listening as well that want to have more objective conversations in the future. But before we get into that, um, got a question from Annie regarding Judas committing suicide after betraying Jesus. Can't we assume he repented, and so is saved by Jesus Christ? While, Annie, unfortunately we would love for the fact for all to come to repentance, we'd want to share God's heart in that, there is in fact a consequence that was plainly spelled out for Judas, not because of what he did do, but what he didn't do. And you can find this in Acts chapter 1, where it notes his ultimate spiritual fate, the thing that ultimately separated Judas from God forever wasn't the fact that he committed suicide, wasn't even the fact that he betrayed Jesus, it's that he, like anyone else who refuses a relationship with Jesus, will not be forced to have a relationship with him forever. And while Judas was exposed to the miracles, performed them in Jesus' name, had access to the teachings, and of course was given those second chances right until the end, the repentance that he demonstrated, and that word is important, wasn't back to Jesus, because repent, metanoia literally, means a turning around. The turning around wasn't to Jesus from his betrayal of him, it was only concerning the money and what he did with it, and that right. was demonstrated in the eyewitness accounts themselves. He took the money Notice the focus—he threw it down in the temple, when they refused to take it back by admitting he had... Uh, sinned and, of course, uh, betrayed innocent blood, but what's interesting as well is that's just stating the obvious. He didn't then seek out Jesus, who, by the way, also was betrayed by 11 other individuals that night, the most prominent of which was the Apostle Peter, who betrayed him not once, not twice, but three times that same night. But what was the difference? Judas Iscariot hung himself outside the city, gave no room for repentance to Jesus. Note that point. Peter wept bitterly, but after the resurrection, and you can read this in John chapter 20, I believe, that he met him by the season. 21, yeah. uh, On the seaside of Galilee, when they went back to their fishing job, and Jesus reminded Peter, not only that I've called you to something, but that you are in fact restored. He gave him three chances. How many times did he deny him? Three chances to say, do you love me? If Judas Iscariot had hung in there which we know he didn't, then he would have been given that same offer. But knowing his heart all the way up till the end, the uh, proof I guess is in the pudding. The question is how do I avoid being a Judas? By making sure, as we've stated, that you have not only repented from the things that you've done that have separated you from God, but repented to the one who's unified you with God. That's what Judas was lacking, and Acts 1 spells that out.
1: Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that, uh, Annie, is this. Sometimes we make the mistake of assuming because someone feels bad, they've repented, or you know, cries crocodile tears, or even makes some gesture of repentance. Uh, we confuse that with biblical repentance. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, the Apostle Paul said this in verse 9, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all things you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. So what the Apostle Paul was saying is, is that Godly sorrow, that's usually what we confuse with repentance, and Judas was all over that. I don't know if it was godly. I think he just felt guilty. But that never drove him back to Jesus. All that did was drive him to an early end. And what Jesus said about him ended up being prophetically fulfilled.
2: All right. Uh, question from... Mac, who wants to know the significance of Luke 12:48, Are we held to a higher standard if we know more on the Bible, and on th- compared to those who don't follow, I believe, is what you were saying. Um, yeah, again, remember, that's the punchline of a parable. I'm not qualified. Uh, I'll hand this off to you. You've had more than 20 years of ministry. That's the rule. But uh, in Luke 12, verses 42 through 48, that is one big conversation. The illustration was two servants were put in charge of things, and the person, of course, who was put in charge and was expecting his master was rewarded. The one who neglected his responsibilities with the mindset and attitude of, in the context of the end times, by the way, uh, my master delays his coming and began to be abusive towards his fellow servants. Did what? Well, he was... punished for his negligence for his actions and the concluding three verses are this i'll start in verse 47 that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes the same negligence but didn't know he shall be beaten with few for everyone to whom much is given. From him much shall be required, and of whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Now, obviously, he goes on to emphasize the same point, but what was that point in the parable? Well,
1: the point in the parable is uh, to watch for the return of Jesus and to watch in such a way that it affects your life. If you know Jesus is coming back, but you completely ignore that uh, reality in terms of how you conduct yourself morally, well, Jesus says, uh, if the servant uh, begins to uh, say in his heart, my master delays his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and he eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come in a day he's not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two, appoint him his portion with unbelievers. uh, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do so according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. To whom much has been committed of him, the last, the more. You know, basically what this comes down to uh, is this. Uh, God will judge everyone based upon the light that they have. And uh, it ties into a classic question that we get asked quite a bit on the program. What about the person who never heard about Jesus? You say that there is salvation in no other name, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What about the person who never got an opportunity to hear about Jesus? Well, a couple things. First of all, uh, if you want to see the incredible lengths that God will go to, literally moving heaven and earth to get the message of salvation to just one person, however unlikely, read Acts chapter 10 about the salvation of the Roman centurion Cornelius and how he had to drag, literally, Simon Peter kicking and screaming after giving him a vision into to Cornelius's house. He had to go against years and years and years of cultural Roman training that says Rome's number one, uh, you know, we're the best, kind of, why in the world would this guy be interested in the God of the Bible anyway? But uh, lo and behold, God gets the message to him. So anyone who has the slightest inclination to want to turn to God, God will move heaven and earth uh, to get that message to him. And God's not limited by missionaries being available and things like this. Certainly God can get the message to anyone who asks. But whenever anybody asks me that question, Sean, the the obvious uh, answer to the response to that question is this. God will take care of that noble savage uh, who never had the opportunity to hear In perfect justice and in perfect mercy. He never gets it wrong. But what about you? You have heard. And if you, on the other side of the coin, arrogantly say, well, you know, I just don't think God lines up with my worldview or or I think I like doing something like this better over here, God will allow you to make that decision. But he, as seems to be the theme of our broadcast today, will also hold you accountable for it. And that's the purpose of that parable. People get into many stripes and few stripes, and does this mean there's degrees of suffering in uh, H-E-double hockey sticks and all that? I don't know anything about that. I think I'll wait till I get there. But the bottom line is this. Uh, If we know the truth, but we blow off the truth, there's consequences for that decision. That's the point of that parable.
2: Let us know if that helps you out, Mac. Uh, another question, and I think we can finish with this because unfortunately Nina's atheist friend uh, went up and left when I asked him. He uh, said, uh, oh, it's, um, if I ask the same question on another broadcast they're going to give me a completely different answer. And I asked five times, does he believe in a concept like truth? Because this is always important to discuss with atheists. He said, no. So I asked him, well, is it true that you would hear a different answer on another broadcast if you asked the same question? I thought there was no such thing is truth. That upset him, so bye-bye. <laughs> um, here's a question from Dwayne. We'll finish with this. Is Halloween satanic? The short answer is no. We'll get more into this as the month of October approaches. Uh, most of the, I guess, costume traditions come from a guy named Guy Fox, who was a bit of a uh, I guess a hooligan. Yes, rabble Razer. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's largely centered around him. People associate it with the uh, pagan festival of Samhain, spelled Samhain, but the disparity is a lot lot more different as we're expressing it today. Just make sure in your heart that you're honored it at the
0: end of the Lord, like every other one. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.